Hey everyone, and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. My name is Rachel Means, and I'm a criminologist. Thank you for joining me for my weekly podcast where I discuss issues facing our criminal justice system. Today I want to talk about how we collect crime data in the United States and how to interpret it. I'll be talking about three different methods we use, including the Uniform Crime Report, the National Incident-Based Reporting System, and self-report surveys. I'll talk about each one in detail as well as their shortcomings. I'll also be discussing the factors that we need to look at to provide context to those crime statistics, specifically regarding race. Let's go ahead and jump in. I want to start with the Uniform Crime Report, or UCR, because it's the most widely used reporting system. It was established in 1927 by the International Associations of Chiefs of Police and was taken over by the FBI in 1930, who still maintains it to this day. The UCR is based on arrest records reported by law enforcement and is broken down into two categories, Part 1 and Part 2. Part 1 of the UCR has crimes that have clearly defined victims, and this section focuses on eight illegal acts, four against persons, and four against property. The crimes against persons include murder, forcible rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. The crimes against property include burglary, larceny, motor vehicle theft, and arson. Part 2 of the UCR focuses on 21 illegal acts that generally do not have clearly identifiable victims. So it could be things like counterfeiting, gambling, drunkenness, disorderly conduct, weapons possessions, and drug offenses. Part 2 also includes crimes that may have direct victims, but they are not directly harmed by the crime. So these are crimes like embezzlement, fraud, vandalism, or buying stolen property. Now, the Uniform Crime Report is not without its shortcomings. One of the biggest flaws of the UCR is that it uses the hierarchy rule, where only the worst crime gets recorded for a certain incidence. So, say someone breaks into a woman's house to rob her, and in the process, the offender forcibly rapes her as well. Well, only the forcible rape will be recorded on the UCR. Unfortunately, there is a lot of leeway for law enforcement when filling out the UCR. It's not uncommon for police departments to inflate their numbers of violent crimes so they are able to secure more funding. On the opposite end of that spectrum, some police departments have been found to be reporting the less serious crime in order to make their city or town more marketable for tourism. Another shortcoming of the UCR is that it only records information about the offender and no information about the victims. So in order to cope with this, the Bureau of Justice created the National Crime Victimization Survey to account for victim data, but it only collects data on non-lethal crimes and only a sample of the population of victims. So every year, they only survey about 240,000 victims out of around 8.2 million crimes. Another downfall of the UCR is that it only collects data about those who were arrested, If someone is caught committing a crime but they are not arrested, their crime will not be counted. And lastly, the UCR lumps a lot of crimes together. For example, attempted murder is counted with actual committed murders, and bank robberies are counted with home robberies. (music) 
The National Incident-Based Reporting System, or NIBRS, is also maintained by the FBI, and the goal of the National Incident-Based Reporting System is to eventually replace the Uniform Crime Report, as the NIBRS was designed to make up for those shortcomings of the UCR. The NIBRS officially went into use in 1991, initially only being used by some police departments in South Carolina and South Dakota. As of 2008, police departments in 32 states were using NIBRS. Now, the NIBRS records crimes like the UCR, but it has expanded the categories for those crimes by a great deal. So instead of those eight categories in the first part of the UCR, the NIBRS tracks 46 crimes over 22 categories. New crimes now included in the NIBRS are crimes such as kidnapping, forcible and non-forcible sex crimes, simple assault, and blackmail. Since the new reporting system with the NIBRS was collecting so much more data, it has allowed researchers to do deep dives into that data to look for patterns and develop profiles. For example, with the new data from the NIBRS, it has been found that elderly men are twice as likely to be victims of eldercide compared to elderly women, and they are predominantly killed by men under the age of 45 who tend to be complete strangers. While elderly women tend to be killed by offenders over the age of 45, usually a spouse or one of their own adult children. The NIBRS has also eliminated the hierarchy rule and now records all crimes committed during an incident. So if we jump back to the example used when discussing the UCR about the robbery turned into a forcible rape, both crimes would be recorded as well as information about the victim, such as age, sex, race, if the victim had a previous relationship with the offender, as well as the date, time, and location. So the NIBRS is collecting data about both the offenders and the victims. The biggest shortcoming with the NIBRS is that not everybody is using it. In 2008, although 32 states were using the NIBRS, only a little over 6,000 police departments were actually using it from around the 18,000 departments that we have in the United States. And as of 2018, only 44% of law enforcement agencies were using the National Incident-Based Reporting System. The most common reason reported by police departments for not using the NIBRS is because it is so in-depth and they are struggling to keep up with reporting. This is especially true for the bigger cities that have a higher number of crimes to report. Earlier, we talked about the National Crime Victimization Survey and how its major downfall was that it only captured a small number of victims. Well, this led criminologists to start conducting their own self-report surveys. And these surveys were developed for both offenders and victims. These surveys were conducted by selecting small sample sizes of individuals at random to represent a population, whether it be a town, city, or state, and the participants were guaranteed total anonymity and confidentiality, and they were asked if they'd ever committed a crime without being caught, or if they'd ever been a victim of a crime without ever reporting it. And surveys found that many people have broken the law that never got caught for it, especially in their teens and early 20s. The surveys also found that many victims do not report crimes committed against them to authorities. So these surveys suggest that even with the most efficient crime reporting system, it will never be able to capture all of the crimes being committed. 
We've talked about how crimes are being recorded, but now I want to discuss how we can use this data. We have to be careful when using crime statistics because they can be misleading if they are used out of context. It's not uncommon for individuals to use statistics in a way that fits their own narrative, even if that's not exactly what the statistic is showing once context is provided, because looking at them without any other context leaves them open to interpretation. One of my favorite examples showing how this can be done is the statistic showing that incidences of head injuries during World War I increased when the British military started using helmets. Someone might argue that that meant that helmets were causing head injuries when in fact, while the number of head injuries increased, the number of deaths decreased. So instead of people dying from head trauma, they were incurring head injuries and surviving them. But if we look at that statistic without any other context, and if we don't look at the number of deaths, then it's open to interpretation and someone could argue that helmets cause head injuries. So we need context when looking at crime statistics. For example, if we look at the percentage of the population under the age of 18 that are arrested for crimes, we see that it's only about 0.85% of the population as a whole under the age of 18 that are arrested for crimes. Now, if we break it up by race, we see that about 0.73% of white people under the age of 18 are arrested for crimes, while 2.34% of black or African American people under the age of 18 are arrested for crimes. Now, hearing those percentages, someone might think, okay, so more black miners are committing crimes compared to white miners. But that's not true. Their percentage is only higher because there are less black people in America. Black or African-American people only make up 13% of our population compared to white people who make up 72%. So if we look at the raw numbers, in 2017 we see that about 385,000 white miners were arrested, while only 218,000 black or African-American miners were arrested. The percentages are misleading. The percentages make it look like more black miners are committing crimes compared to white miners, when really it's the opposite, which would be expected because there are more white people in America. Now we can use these percentages to determine the rate of crimes occurring among certain races. In a vacuum, we would predict that the crime rate for all races would be exactly the same, but they're not. So we need to do some digging to determine why there is such a big gap between the crime rates of white miners and black or African American miners. We know that skin color does not determine criminality. We talked about this before in a previous episode when I discussed the theories of crime. The positivist theory stated that criminality could be determined by physical features, which was quickly disproven. Instead, researchers have suggested using social disorganization theories that look at sociological factors such as socioeconomic status, poverty rates, employment opportunities, and the family unit. So now we have to ask the question, are there any sociological factors that are influencing Black or African American communities that are different from white communities as a whole that would cause the crime rate to be higher? The short answer is yes. There are proven disparities between white and black communities. One of the biggest factors is wealth. Black and African American families only hold a fraction of this nation's wealth compared to white families, giving the white families more opportunity for economic mobility and access to education. 
As of 2016, it was found that black families only held one-tenth of the amount of wealth as white families. According to the strain theory of crime, individuals will commit crimes when they are unable to provide for themselves or their families financially, or if they are unable to achieve a middle-class lifestyle through legitimate means. Black communities also have less access to tax advantages such as owning a home because of the discrimination in the mortgage markets, which can lead to areas with higher residential instability. According to the theory of collective efficacy, residential instability increases the crime rate because the community is lacking in social cohesion and trust. Essentially, neighbors aren't helping each other out because they either don't know each other or don't want to get involved with each other's business. There is also employment discrimination that has kept black people from obtaining stable jobs that also pay well. This may force parents or guardians to take on multiple jobs and spend less time at home with their children. According to the routine activities theory, a crime will occur when there is a motivated offender, a suitable target, and the lack of capable guardianship. And that lack of capable guardianship can increase the crime rate among minors. Crime statistics have been used to perpetuate harmful narratives such as the myth of black-on-black crime, which essentially is inferring that black people are inherently violent. And this narrative was created by white supremacists to promote black inferiority, and they used crime statistics to fit that narrative by using them without any context. Now, it is true that most crimes against black people are committed by other black people, but it's the same for every other race. The majority of crimes against white people are committed by other white people. And one of the biggest reasons for this is location. The majority of people tend to live near people of the same race. Our cities and towns still remain relatively segregated. Therefore, the people around us available to commit crimes against us tend to be people of the same race. So when we are looking at crime statistics, we can't look at them in a vacuum. We cannot use them without context to fit our narratives. When we look at these statistics as a whole in context with social factors, it's obvious that the systematic oppression of Black people in America has a large effect on the crime rate. Okay, so that's everything I wanted to discuss today in regards to crime reporting in the U.S. and how we can use that data. If you want to check out any of my sources for today's episode, they are listed in the description below. And I challenge you that the next time you hear someone using statistics to fit their narrative, that you do a little digging to see if there's any underlying factors that might be influencing those statistics. You can always let me know your thoughts on Twitter. You can find me at Crisis of Crime, or you can send me an email at crisisofcrime at gmail.com. As always, I look forward to hearing from you. I hope everyone is taking care of themselves during these tough times. And until next time, this has been Crisis of Crime.